Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Tonle Sap is one of Southeast Asia's, if not one of the world's, natural wonders. Between the dry and wet seasons, the lake expands almost six times in size to cover an area the size of Kuwait. The flows are so strong that the Tonle Sap River actually reverses course, with water from the lake flowing into the Mekong River. And that means the lake is one of the most biodiverse in the world, with fish populations that have sustained fishing communities for generations. But the lake is stressed by climate change, overfishing, and hydropower damming. Abby Seif's Troubling the Water, A Dying Lake, and a Vanishing World in Cambodia tells the stories of those who live along the lake's shores, and how they try to keep their lives and livelihoods going. Abby Seif is a journalist who was based in Southeast Asia for nearly a decade, working as editor at the Cambodia Daily and the Phnom Penh Post, in our publications such as Time, The Economist, Al Jazeera, and Pacific Standard, among others. She is now a freelance correspondent. Today, Abby and I talk about Tonle Sap, how it's changed in recent years, and what the lake's communities tell us about what it means to be a climate refugee. So, Abby, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Review Books podcast. Maybe let's start with geography. What makes the Tonle Sap so unique when it comes to talking about rivers, talking about lakes? Thank you so much for having me. What makes the Tonle Sap very unique is it, it, it it's a couple of different phenomena. So just to give you a sort of brief geographical overview, the lake is fed by a tributary of the Mekong River. The Mekong is one of the world's longest rivers. It's 3,000 miles, runs from... Tibet and China all the way down to Vietnam's Delta. Um, and this is also, you know, this lake, this river is one of the world's biggest fisheries. It's incredibly biodiverse. Um, and the Tonle Sap River in Cambodia is, is this really critical tributary of the Mekong. And it runs sort of northwest off of the Mekong up into the Tonle Sap Lake. Um, what's, what's really unusual is that the river reverses course twice a year. So during the rainy season, the Mekong River gets so full of water, it sort of overflows its its bounds and it begins pushing water up the Tonle Sap River and into the Tonle Sap Lake, which then, as you mentioned, expands up to six times its size. And so this is flooding the paddy lands all around the lake, but it's also moving fish up, up river and into the lake and it's moving nutrients up there. Um, and it's making it, you know, this this really sort of uniquely rich source. Um, and then about five months later, the whole thing, the opposite happens. The lake kind of shrivels inwards and the water pushes down into the river, it reverses course, and it goes up into the, the Mekong. Um, and so this, this double movement, as it were, um, it's just created this incredibly sort of fecund, lake um it's it's one of the world's biggest inland fisheries it you know just supports these kind of incredible creatures like the mekong giant catfish which can grow up to 600 pounds um and it's a it's a really it's sort of just this remarkable hydrological phenomenon um and it's something that's really celebrated within within Cambodian culture. So, for instance, the, the Water Festival, which is one of the biggest holidays of the year, uh, that's celebrated in part because of the river reversing course. 
and you know, you've you've talked about the size of some of the fish involved, and there's obviously it's it's been a it's been for much of its history this this great spot for fishing communities. Um, how long have Cambodians lived along the shores of the Tonle Sap? Um, how long have they been fishing there? Oh well, it's clear that this has been going on for you know probably since humans were inhabiting these parts of Cambodia. So there's there's sort of archaeological evidence that's about 4,000 years old, 6,000 years old of these necropolises located right along the rivers, excuse me, along the lake's banks. Um, and they show evidence of fishing. You know, there, there's evidence of roast fish meals and there's um, there's fish bones and there's um, fishing tools and, and you know, the, the, there's just these zoological archaeologists have uncovered these mounds of animal bones and um, just hundreds and hundreds of types of fish, including some that are extinct now, including some that have never been spotted in the lake. So, for instance, they found the Irrawaddy dolphin, which is um, already nearly extinct from the from the lower Mekong, but it's they they have evidence of it being in the lake. So, you know, from this we can just see that Cambodians have or pre-Cambodians have have relied on on the lake's fisheries sort of since time immemorial. Um, more recently, we have things like, you know, bas-relief on Angkor Wat's temples. Um, they, they show these really rich scenes that kind of look like things you'd see at the market today with people, you know, selling fish at a market and people cooking fish up and, you know, um, boaters churning churning the waters and fish kind of floating in and out of their oars. Um, and there's been some really great research into that um, by a gentleman named Kent Hortel, who sort of looked through looked through these bas-relief and, and identified what species these fish were. Um, and then more recently, we've had historic accounts. So these are, you know, written accounts talking about how people living on the lake are, are relying on the fish are fishing the means by which they're catching these fish. Um, and these are French explorers in the 19th century. These are people like Zhu Dagon, who's a Chinese emissary from the 13th century. And, you know, throughout these hundreds of years of written, written descriptions, it's really similar. We're talking about <laughs> people walking down the banks and taking a wicker basket and scooping it in and thus they have their dinner. Um, and then if we, if we talk about even more recently, you know, we just have oral histories from people who still live on the lake. And even just a few decades ago, we're describing something somewhat similar. You know, I, I was speaking with people who were not that old who said when I was a child, fish would jump into the boat or, you know, we, we just dip our bowl in and fish would come up. So I think these sorts of descriptions um, from archaeological to, to spoken today, they really speak to how, how wild these fisheries are, how many fish had been in this lake until a, until a really short amount of time ago. So I, I kind of want to get at a bit more about how Cambodians today um, live along the Tonle Sap. You know, one one image that you keep on 
bringing up is the idea of the of the floating homes they live in, um, which I guess they have to, right? I mean, if given how the lakes how how the lake expands in size, the homes probably have to be floating just to make sure that you know they don't get um, overrun with water. But I just wonder you might talk about like I, I guess exactly how Cambodians in the Ton Lai Sap, um, you know, how they construct their homes, how they live their lives, um, how much time do they spend fishing, how else do they make their living, um, and so on. When when we talk about Cambodians living on the Ton Lai Sap, there's there's sort of a, a few different types of ways that people live there. So one are floating villages, um, and we can think of these as as houseboats. Um, boats, houseboats, uh, sort of structures, small rafts that are lashed onto, onto floats. Um, and these are very, these are, these tend, there's a few large scale villages like these, but generally they tend to be pretty small, um, and extremely poor. And then the next step up might be what we still call floating villages, but, but they're actually stilted villages. So these are homes. Um, there's a lot of them, near Angkor Wat in Siem Reap. And these are homes where, you know, they're towering on these stilts that are about 20 or 30 feet high um, with stairs leading up from the road to the home. And the reason those are so high is because when the lake expands, the water rises up right under these homes. Um, And so in the dry season, you can use the roads, you can drive on them with your motorbike or your car. They're totally ordinary roadways. In the wet season, you will see boats moving through the villages. It's imagine Venice or something like that. Um, so these these are kind of the the two types of villages that are common around the lake. And you know, within these villages, everybody fishes, and it's kind of a matter of what portion of their their life fishing is. So if you're on a floating village, you, you're not doing anything else except fishing. There's a few exceptions. You know, some people raise alligators or they they have a fish farm which you you can sort of do under and around your floating home um near the banks the alligators need land so that would be on the bank but um for the most part you know fishing is is their primary livelihood the villages that are closer to land obviously you 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 know you might have a secondary job and that's becoming more and more common so perhaps you drive a tuk-tuk in, in the off season, or perhaps you work as a laborer or construction worker. Um, you know, many women work in the market. They, they grow things to sell in the market. And this is a way that they can sort of supplement their income. Um, but traditionally, people really relied on fishing, both for um, their own you know, family's needs, but also for an income. Um, increasingly, that's that's just becoming impossible. Um, it's not. It's not something that they can readily rely on anymore. And when I say that, I'm I'm talking about a really big change. So, you know, people would say a few. The, the, these were interviews I was doing in 2016, which was a bad drought year, but is is pretty similar to the status at the moment. And they would say just a few years ago, I would be catching, you know, 10 to 20 kilograms a day and now I'm catching one to three kilos a day um so you know when you add that up day after day after day it's just you can understand how impoverished these fishers are becoming and how this is really not becoming a a tenable livelihood for them anymore 
well, this leads to a good segue to my next question, which I know is a complicated and, and complex question. Um, but effectively, you know, what changed? You know, why is the lake suddenly less productive? Why are the rains less frequent? Why is the fishing less sustainable? You know, this poor lake, it's 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 just a perfect storm of problems that have sort of happened all at once in a very short period of time. So, you know, the first thing I, I think of it as kind of a global, regional and local problem. And the, the global problem is, of course, climate change. And we know that countries like Cambodia, um, though they contribute the least to climate change, are really the most vulnerable Um and so climate change in Cambodia and all of the lower Mekong has just led to, um, it's led to more severe droughts, which has led to a, a lower water level. Um, a lower water level in the Mekong, of course, means that the river can't reverse course as easily. So it will reverse course weeks or even months late. Um, the reversal will last, you know, weeks instead of months. Um and then the volume of the lake is, is reaching just a fraction of what it once did. And all of this means that um, it's affecting how the fish are moving in and out and it's affecting, you know, the paddy lands around the lake and it's affecting the farmers and the fishers who really rely on this, this movement of the lake. Um, so that's, you know, the, the biggest problem. Um, the other biggest problem is uh, hydropower. Um, and these are dams on the Mekong main stem, particularly in China. Um, what's very interesting about the Mekong is the lower Mekong, which which is the section that runs through um, Laos, Thailand, uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, um, and part of Myanmar, is um, you know it's kind of like a, a slow moving river and and it can and has been dammed but in china the river is runs through gorges so it's it's really um kind of ripe for hydropower and since the 90s china has been very interested in hydropower it's gone on a huge nationwide hydropower push and it's um it's put nearly a dozen dams on the on the main stem of the the lansing river upstream and um this has really changed the downstream hydrology. Um, and by that, I mean that instead of, you know, water gushing out in the wet season and, and sort of being quite dry in the dry season, it's reversed because obviously you want to, you, you, you're releasing water in the dry season for electricity purposes. Um, you're holding it back in the wet season. And, and so this is changing that double movement of the river as well. Um, it's, it's making Mekong, lower Mekong water levels drop quite a bit. Um, so we have the dams on the upper Mekong. We also have dams on the lower Mekong. You know, Laos has built dams on the lower Mekong main stem. Cambodia and other countries have built them on key tributaries. Um, and even if a dam is not on the main stem, if it's only on a tributary, still affects things like fish migration. It still affects things like how nutrient is moving um, and it affects how the water is moving. So that's, you know, reason number two. And then the third biggest reason, I, I want to make it clear, these are just all huge reasons and they're very much intertwined and they really impact one another. Um, so the third reason is the local reason and that's, you know, overfishing and illegal fishing. Um, 
And this also is a complex problem. So part of it is you just have a big population boom around the lake. You have many more people relying on it. Um, you know, just more fishers drawing on a, on a somewhat limited resource. Um, as the fish catch goes down, um, fishers, particularly kind of the most desperate, are, are, are sort of pushed to use illegal means more and more. So if they can't catch full-size fish using the legal nets, they're going to use nets with smaller holes. They're going to be catching smaller fish, but that means they're also going to be catching juvenile fish, which just leads into a feedback loop of fish not growing big enough to breed and create more fish. Um, and then the sort of what I've suspected as the real problem, although this is this is very anecdotal, and I have to say I haven't witnessed it myself. I've only heard about it from fishers and from activists. Is that there's sort of large scale illegal fishing happening deep inside the lake, deep inside the conservation area, um, and these would be kind of illegal commercial fisheries that are catching, you know, the big fish that are being bred in these conservation zones. Um, and then this goes down to issues of corruption and sort of a lack of enforcement. Um, so every fisher I spoke to on the lake just really complained about this. They said there's not enough enforcement. They're not cracking down on illegal fishing. You know, last year when we looked at the lake, we could see trawlers, like the smoke from trawlers miles away because there were so many of them. And so all of these are just a, a huge pressure on on the fishery and it's you know it's it's an incredible fishery it's it's it is a limited resource but it's not that limited you're talking about hundreds of thousands of tons being pulled from this lake um but all of this is is leading to a serious decline i do want to talk about the i'm going to say the corruption and the illegal fishing for a little bit um you know in your book how they changed how the fishing rights in the lake were were divided up going from i guess lots that were basically auctioned to the highest bidder um meaning that it went towards the wealthy and powerful um to divide it up between conservation zones and i think it was lots allotted to fishing communities um which in one sense i think seems like it made things a lot fairer but it also appears that it made the issue of controlling the level of fishing and controlling overfishing in particular much more difficult. Um, and I wondered if you might talk a bit more about, I, I guess, I, I guess how kind of, I guess, policy um, and ways of thinking about, I'm going to use the word property, although maybe it's the wrong term. Um, like how, I guess, fishing, how they, how, how the change to how fishing rights were divided up ended up affecting the ability to kind of combat overfishing. Yeah, to me, this was a really interesting phenomenon. And again, it's it's sort of hard to measure because the change in this fisheries came at a time when more dams were being built and when kind of we were seeing globally climate change and droughts really speed up. Um, so it's, it's hard to be specific if it's really one-to-one. But basically, um, the way the fishing lot system worked was a large portion of the lake was divided into these lots. Um, very wealthy people 
had the right to the lots. Um, it was obviously in the owner's interest to allow the fish to to grow because that was how they were going to make their money. Um, and so these lots, I mean, you read descriptions of how these lots were guarded in the 90s and it's like, it's it's very intense. They had their own private militias. They, um, you know, they were, they were very heavily policed. Um, and there was a lot of corruption going on with the lots. So the lot owners would, you know, push out their boundaries into areas that were supposed to be for the public and will betide the small fisherman who's trying to get his fish. Um, but from a strictly, you know, one from a, but from a strictly like fisheries yield perspective, it's it seemed like these at least did keep the fish supply quite abundant um, because they were so kind of um, benefiting only the supremely wealthy. Um, the prime minister in a kind of populist bid, um, he sort of would annul these lots every so often. And, and finally, around 2012, 2013, he he annulled the system completely, and this was this was sort of welcomed by um, conservationists and by uh, NGOs and, and and fisheries experts because they thought, well, this this is going to be a much more equitable system. This will allow small scale fishermen to really access the fish stocks. Um, but what happened is, you know, it just it sort of became an, another mismanaged type of system. So there were conservation zones, but as I've mentioned, you know, there's there's a certain amount of corruption that appears to be allowing uh, illegal fishing within those zones. Um, there are some community fishing areas, but not many. Um, and so what you have is it's just... It's just another, you know, there, there's not the type of management that would kind of be necessary. Um, it's there on paper, it's, it's, but it's really not there in practice. Um, and as a result, it's, it's kind of the same thing at the end of the day, which is the, the smallest, poorest fishing families are the ones who are most struggling to catch fish. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of discussion on what it would look like. There's 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 a lot of good community led fisheries programs around the world. You know, if communities had the right to these fisheries, I you know I certainly think it would improve things a lot. Um, but it's you know at the end of the day, this is a resource, and if someone stands to make money off of it, they will be protecting it and making money off of it. So I had another thought when reading your book, which, and this question has a bit of a a bit of a preamble, so forgive me. Um, but I was struck by how your book kind of changes how we think about the climate refugee. You know, I think I think when we think about climate refugees, we think about people who have been uprooted by natural disaster. You know, climate change causes worse storms or worse flooding, which then push people from their homes. Or we think about um, people maybe being forced from land that where temperatures now become inhospitable. You think about places in South Asia going through record heat waves. But I wonder, after reading your book, that climate refugees are going to be more like the people we see in the Tonle Sap, where you know it's still hospitable. People can still live there. But the environment has changed such that people's livelihoods or a community of a certain size is no longer viable. Um, 
And I wonder if you might talk about, if you might kind of talk about how the experience in the Tonle Sap changes how we should think about the effects of climate change or maybe environmental damage in general. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you brought this up because this is something I've been sort of trying to drive home. Um, you know, often what the West classifies as economic migrants and, and kind of turns their nose up as not being real refugees. If you look back to what they're coming from, it, it is almost always a climactic related event. So, um, you know, it's a situation where serious flooding is making their farmlands untenable or where serious drought is making their farming untenable or, um, you know, in the, the case of the Tonle Sap, what we have is partly in large part because of climate change, um, you know, the, their livelihood of fishing is untenable. And so what we've seen in recent years is more and more and more people, particularly young people, leaving the lake to go work in factories, to go work on construction sites, to go to Thailand, to work in plantations or fishing boats. Um, and it is, I think you're completely correct to call these climate refugees. They just don't look like what we think of as climate refugees. Um, and this is not at all unique to Cambodia. That We see this across Asia. We see this across Africa. Um, uh, this photographer I know is Isa Cruz. She did a, a great piece maybe five years ago documenting um, Indonesian women who went to work as maids in Malaysia. Um, the reason they were going was because their family farms were just really, really, really badly damaged because of climate change. Um, you know, things were not growing the way they were supposed to. Uh, the family goes gets deeper in debt and the children have to leave. And that's exactly what we're seeing on the lake. Um, the children are leaving to help families pay debt that they cannot pay because their livelihoods are not working anymore. Um, so yeah, this is, this is a global phenomenon and it's something we, you know, I, I really hope that we reconsider how we, how we think about human movement because you know, people, people don't want to leave their homes. Generally people leave their homes when they have to. Um, and when we say they're seeking economic opportunity, we have to think, why do they not have that at home? Um, often the answer is because of what we as the wealthiest nations have, have done to these countries, um, at at a climate level, you know, we are so responsible for, for this changing climate. Um, we don't really, you know, we see somewhat the, the impacts in front of our eyes, but for most of us listening to this podcast, our day-to-day livelihood is, is not impacted by drought or flooding. Um, if that is how you make your money, if that's how you feed your family, literally, um, and you can no longer do so, of course, you have to seek work elsewhere. Um, and so I'm, I'm really glad you raised that issue. So I wanted to kind of end the interview by asking what's happened to the Tonle Sap since you reported the since you reported um, the book since you um, published the book. Uh, have there been any changes to the Tonle Sap since 
I guess since you finished the book, has policy changed? Has um, life along its banks changed? Um, has anything has anything changed at all? Sure. So the the book only came out in March, um, and I only sort of put the finishing touches on it late last year. But most of my field reporting for the book was done in. 2016 and 2017 and a little bit of 2018. And then I moved back to New York and I sort of had intended to go back and because of COVID, I, I couldn't. Um, but I obviously, while I was writing it, I, w- I was really following from afar what was happening. Um, what really struck me is, you know, when I was talking to people in 2016, um, which as I mentioned, was a very bad drought year, and 2017, which was not a bad drought year, and in hindsight was kind of the last normal year, people would talk about, oh, you know, I I think in for the next ten or twenty years the lake will be fine, but in fifty or sixty years, it will it will not be good anymore. And I thought that was an optimistic timeline, but I I have been really bowled over by how quickly things have changed. Um, so. You know, 2016 was kind of one of those superlative years with the lowest water level and, and you know, the greatest heat and, and the lowest fish catches. And since then, almost every year has kind of hit those new lows, you know, the, the lowest water level in 25, in, excuse me, in 100 years. Um, we've heard that year after year after year. Um, you know, the, the river basically, for all intents and purposes, stopped reversing course two years ago. It it and by that I mean you know instead of lasting five weeks it it lasts um, excuse me um, instead of lasting five months it lasts about six weeks and so nothing is really moving properly it's very it's very sort of still and low lying um, as I mentioned earlier the lake is reaching like a quarter of its regular volume um, sh- so this to me is is really fast. It's not, it's, it's much faster than I was expecting. I had friends who were reporting on this, um, who kind of update me and they said, oh, well, we spent a whole day with this guy fishing and all he caught was two eels, two, not two, not two kilos or two pounds, two. Um, and this is just, yeah, it's, it's, it's catastrophic. Um, you know, in recent, in terms of if policy change, that sort of thing. Last, starting late last year, Prime Minister Hansen said he wanted a real crackdown on illegal fishing in the lake, and um, you know that's a that's a good statement and that's a good sign. But anecdotally, it appears that it's just it's really going after the small people. It's not, you know, it's it's sort of clear from the photos and videos and from the things we're hearing from those on the lake that this is just a it's like a glorified photo op, you know, not that these people are not illegally fishing, but this is not the illegal fishing that's making a difference. And they're arresting these people and they're clearly so poor. And these are not the people that are making a huge impact on, on the fisheries with their illegal fishing. Um, there was also a big push to um, restore the flooded forest around the lake. So these forests have sort of been systemically, cut down despite being a protected area over the past five years um, and turned into farmlands. Um, again, this is something that could only be done by someone in power, um, by officials. 
And while it's, you know, a good sign that they recognize that they need this flooded forest, it's sort of like, it's been going on for five years. Why is it happening now? And, you know, can anything really change if all you're doing is sort of kicking out these farmers who rented this land um, and not a, not arresting the officials that allowed this to happen in the first place? Um, so, you know, I, I, I sort of try to be, there's an optimistic side of me that says, well, it's it's great that the government recognizes the importance of the lake, um, you know, that they that they want show that they want to do things. But if it's just if it's just lip service or photo ops, um, that's not really policy. Um, in terms of higher level stuff, you know, um, there's there's a lot of sign that China is is really willing to work with lower Mekong nations and release water in a way that will help downstream countries. Um, and if that continues to be the case, that's that's obviously hugely important just for the kind of livelihoods of 70 million lower Mekong Basin residents who rely on the Mekong. Um, but in terms of changing the hydrology of the Tonle Sap, it, it, my understanding is it's it's not enough. You know, once you, once you create those dams, you really can't undo them. Um, so those are some of, you know, those are some of the developments, but the main development is we've got hundreds of thousands of people living on this lake and they continue to go deeper and deeper into debt and their children continue to leave home and take risky jobs. And, um, you know, for those, those people who are most impacted, uh, no, there's, there's not policy changes. There's not kind of life style changes that are reaching them and that are having any type of improvement. It's, it's just, it just seems to be worsening year after year, very unfortunately. Well, I think with that, that ends our interview with Abby Seif, author of Troubling the Water, A Dying Lake and a Vanishing World in Cambodia. Abby, I actually have two final questions for you. The first is, uh, where can people find your work? And the second is, what's next for you? Oh, thank you, Nick. Um, people can buy this book anywhere online. Um, I know I know. in Asia there's been, people have had trouble procuring it. I would really urge you to just ask your local bookstore to carry it. Um, that's, the, that's sort of the best way to ensure that they will have it. They can order it for you. Um, it, shouldn't cost any more than it would cost on one of those big boxes. Um, but you can, you can order it from wherever you order books. Um, and what's next for me? That's a great question. I work as a freelance editor. I work from home. I'm getting an MFA in fiction. So maybe the next book will be a novel. We'll see. Um, but I, you know, I really am hoping that I can go back to Cambodia this summer and, and meet with some of the people who are kind enough to talk with me for this book and see how they're doing because it's, you know, it's hard to be away and it's hard to sit in my little desk in New York and, and talk about these issues from my little ivory tower. Um, and yeah, the, you know, sorry, that became very rambly. <laughs> Maybe no, no. I it I as someone who has been who has been stuck in one location for much of the I say much all of the past two years, um, I can I can very much sympathize with um, with with a wish to go to go 
um, well, to to be somewhere else, to see something else. Um, but you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nickari Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to agentviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. Um, and the New Books Network has countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Um, the Airbnb podcast, all our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to continue, support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more info what's going up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Abby, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me.